0: Well, if you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 73. You can find it on page 485 486 in the Bibles provided in the chairs. Psalm 73 is one of the most memorable Psalms in the Bible. People seem to love it. It seems to come up very frequently in the midst of conversations. And I think part, in part the reason why it does is because it so eloquently captures the longings of our hearts, or at least what we want our hearts to be toward God. Perhaps some of the most familiar verses in all of this psalm is verses 25 and 26, which says, "Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever." And that's beautiful. I want that for myself. I, I want that to characterize my life. And, I, and at times, that has been my experience. But if I'm honest with myself, most of the time, that's not the attitude of my heart. That's not my only desire. God is not who I really look to for strength. I look to myself for strength and God is seemingly not my portion forever. If I'm honest, I want God, but I want other things too. I believe in God, but I also believe that my soul can find happiness in things other than God, just as easily, just as readily. I sing, like we sang earlier, all of you is more than enough for all of me, for every thirst and every need. You satisfy me with your love, and all I have in you is more than enough. But if I'm honest with myself, deep down I question whether or not it really is. And at times I I certainly don't feel like it is. And I wonder if you are real with yourself this morning, how often you feel the same way. I wonder how many of you even came here this morning feeling that very way. Now, what do we tend to do when that happens? When that is the, the sentiment of our hearts, when we come face to face with verses like 25 and 26, and we realize, you know what, that is not my experience. What do we do? We become silent. Our worship of God ceases. We distance ourselves from God and from his people. We begin to sulk Or maybe we just go into action mode, right? We just say, you know what? I'm going to suck it up, and I'm going to perform my duty. I'm just going to put on a face. I'm going to pretend like this is me, like this is what I truly live for. and And if I just muscle through it, then God will be pleased with me. Or maybe we think to ourselves, you know what? This is just poetry. This is just hyperbole. This is just exaggerated language. I mean, Asaph is just trying to look spiritual here. He's just trying to seem better than what he really is. I mean, he doesn't live like that. Nobody lives like that. Or maybe you you come and you look at this passage and you say, think to yourself, well, he's just super spiritual. I mean, of course, this is Asaph, right? He's a mature believer. He's a worship leader of God's people, but that's not me. That may be fine for him because he's got this sort of secret knowledge of God, this nearness that I can never hope to have. That's good for him. That's his experience, but it's not mine. And I could never hope that that could be mine. And where do we tend to divert our eyes when we turn them away from God? Where do we set our hearts when our hearts are not fixed upon him. They move lower and we set our gaze upon the world. We try to find our soul's happiness. We try to find our heart's satisfaction in the world. We hope, we strive, we labor, we seek, we believe that we can look to the world then and find enough Maybe we try to do that completely apart from God. You know what? I don't need God. All I need is this, and that is enough. Or maybe, maybe we're, you're like me, and you say, you know what? I just need God and this, and that will be enough. If I just have God and this, that will be enough. And when we have set our eyes on the world And when those are the thoughts and the beliefs and the plans and the desires and the inclinations of our hearts, what emotions does that tend to produce within us? Certainly not joy or peace or contentment or belief or hope or longing, but envy, jealousy, discontentment. We grow angry and bitter We become discouraged and despondent and and depressed. We begin to wallow in self-pity because our envy for some experience other than the one that we're presently finding ourselves in, it engulfs us, it overwhelms us. And if that's the state of our hearts, then how can we truly worship God? I mean, how can we say that, that our hearts' affections are wholeheartedly for him When in reality they're not. And so the worship of God ceases, and our longings to find enough from the world increases, and as it increases and increases and increases, we begin to feel more and more empty. Now, fortunately for us, we don't just have Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26. We have all of Psalm 73. And when you understand Psalm 73 in its context, you realize that that Psalm speaks to exactly the same situation, to exactly the same heart that I just described to you. That it actually begins with this experience of frustration and envy of the world. And it helps move us towards what we see there in verse 25 and 26. That God really, really is enough. And we can have that. We get to share in Asaph's heart struggle in Psalm 73. And when we do that, we can see that, you know what? We can't defeat bitterness. We can't defeat self-pity by trying to make ourselves more spiritual. But instead, the emptiness of envy is overwhelmed by the nearness of God. That's what we're going to see from this psalm. The emptiness of envy is overwhelmed by the nearness of God. Now, I want to read this psalm in its entirety. And what I want you to do is I want you to see and I want you to identify personally with his struggle, with his pain, with what he's experiencing. And then I want you to watch very carefully for the change of heart that you see happen. And I'll even tell you where it is. Verse 17, okay? So as I read this, Read along with me and look for this change of heart. This is Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, and my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envy of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked." For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts to the earth. Therefore, his people, God's people, turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the most high? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands with Innocence, Uh, for all day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought of how to understand this, it, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until, until I entered into the sanctuary of God. And then I discerned their end. Truly, you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. Afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of your works. When you read scripture, truth that comes out on every single page over and over and over and over again is that mankind are worshipers by nature. All of us worship something. We were created to worship. We will be worshiped. And not only that, we were meant to be consumed. We were meant to be overwhelmed by what we worship. We were meant to wholeheartedly give ourselves in praise to something, and all of us do, and all of us will. The first half of this psalm shows what happens when we find ourselves worshiping the things of this world. We become engulfed in envy, but the second half describes our hearts When our hearts are actually centered on the one that we were created to worship. And when our hearts are centered on that which we were created to worship, what we find is that we are overwhelmed by the nearness of God. And so that's how we're going to break this text down. I want us to first look at the emptiness of envy. Now verses 1 through 3 set the stage for us. This is the place of envy. This, as it says right, right here in verse 1, is a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph, if you're not familiar with who this guy is, he's one of the main worship pastors of God's people. He's like our Caleb, right? Only, only Caleb, God love him does a great job. He's only the worship pastor of a local church, right? Asaph, on the other hand, is the worship pastor of the nation of Israel. This would be like if we took Caleb and we all elected him to be one of the main worship pastors for the United States of America. So Asaph is kind of a big deal, all right? And not only that, But the one true and living God of the universe, the God who created and sustains all that there is, inspired Asaph to write 12 songs. Psalms are songs. For the nation of Israel to sing in faithful worship to God. Now, when I say inspiration, what I don't mean is that like how a muse inspires an artist to sort of generate creativity, that's not what I mean. When I say the Lord inspired, I'm saying that though Asaph was writing what was on his heart, what was coming to bear upon his mind, it was exactly as the Lord had ordained. It is exactly what the Lord wanted, that the Holy Spirit so inspired Asaph to write these songs, and he did it for the purpose to lead the hearts of God's people to worship of God. Okay, that's important to get here. They're faithful to God, they're accurate, they're what God wanted. They tell us who God truly is and who he's revealed himself to be. And so this song, as well as the other 11 of Asaph's hit, is As God Wanted. This one. And so here's Asaph, and he's this big time worship leader for God's people who is inspired to write songs that God wanted his people to sing. And so this guy, we have to think to ourselves at this point, you know, this guy has got to be a spiritual superhero. He's like a super saint, right? He's holy. He never sins. He probably lives this life of just continual worship and nearness and experience of God right? He's, he's just there all the time. The guy probably sits down at a piano and in five minutes cranks out this song that just makes God happy, right? I can never hope to be like that. That could never ever be my experience. I mean, this guy is, is God chose him. God inspired him. God appointed him to be the spiritual leader for his people. And yet this is the same Asaph, We read about last week that struggled with doubt, and worry, and despair. Same Asaph who in other songs questions God. Same Asaph who experienced fear. Right here we see him angry and envious, crying his seemingly faithless heart out to God because he envied the prosperity of the wicked. He says right there in verse 1, Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Asaph is saying, look, intellectually, I know that this is true. This is the doctrine that I believe. This is what I believe about you, God. But guess what? I almost stumbled. My feet narrowly slipped. I I realized that I was not pure in heart. I forgot the goodness of God. And why? Because I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Now, let's just take a time out right here and let this be of some comfort to you this morning. This has certainly been comfort to me. I mean, here we have a man whom God appointed to lead his people to worship him in spirit and in truth, who God inspired to write the very words of God for for his people to sing, and yet we see him very real about the battle that was raging in his heart, in his soul, We see here that he's far from perfect, that he's not pure in heart, that he forgot the character of God. He did stumble. He did slip. And by the grace of God, he was able to recover. He struggled with envy. He longed for prosperity. He took his eyes off of God and he placed them on the world. Asaph is broken, just like you and me. And yet God was faithful to him. Because God was faithful to him and allowed him to write this song, even through Asaph's song, God is being faithful to us, to all of us who experienced the very same things. God used his experiences of fear and doubt and depression and anxiety and anger and envy to lead his people who struggle with all of those same things back to worship of him. See, God didn't leave Asaph in his sin, say, tough. God didn't leave him overwhelmed by his emotions. God led his heart back to him. And he gave us this song to do the very same thing in us. So let that be of comfort to you. But let's make sure we understand what the place of envy, the seat of envy really was. It wasn't outside of Asaph. It wasn't the fault of his upbringing. It wasn't the fault of his culture. It wasn't the fault of the arrogant or the wicked. Asaph acknowledges that it was his own heart. That he forgot God's goodness. He was not pure in heart. He said, I almost stumbled. I nearly slipped because I took my eyes off of God and I placed them on the prosperity of the world. His envy and ours is the outflow Of the worship of our hearts when we take our eyes off of God and we place them on the seeming prosperity of the world. We are worshipers, and worshipers will always worship what they behold. What do you behold? You will worship something, and you will know what it is by what you behold. But Asaph goes on in verses 4 through 12, and he gives us some specific reasons why he envied the wicked. In verse 4, he says, they have no pangs until death. They're, they're not tormented by pain or hardship. They don't experience disabilities. There's nothing in this life that seems to fetter or limit them from living life to its absolute foolish, or, or, sorry, fullness." Uh, have you ever wished for freedom from physical limitations like even if you're playing basketball and you know you're remembering back to when you were like 18 years old you used to dunk a ball but you can't anymore and you're just wishing I wish I was like that guy who's still 18 and can dunk the ball down to things like I just wish that I didn't go through life feeling pain every single day Why did the Lord give me this sickness? Why did He give me this illness? Why is this chronic pain or disability my lot? He says their bodies are fat and sleek. Now, Asaph is not saying, well, you may have an easy, hardship free life, but you're fat. That's not what he's getting at, right? It's a cultural difference here, right? Fat and sleek, that doesn't sound very good to us. And so think to yourself, strong, healthy, beautiful bodies. These wicked have the bodies that you wish you had. In verse 5, he says, they're not in trouble as others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. They've got it so easy. They don't deal with all the toils and the difficulties and the hardships that we have to. And even when they kind of get themselves into trouble, they never get called on it. They just do whatever they want, live however they want. It's just easy, carefree life. I mean, who here doesn't want a trouble-free life? It's like, no, go go ahead and sign me up for it. And since... They are pain and trouble free. And because they're healthy, wealthy, and beautiful and successful, since everything seems to always go their way, it says in verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace and violence covers them like a garment. They adorn themselves in arrogance and oppression and people think they're cool. They're like the mean girls in the cafeteria. Or like gangbangers, or, or like the jocks walking down the hall that are always shoving the, kid, the weak kids into the lockers, right? I mean, they're, they're proud, they're arrogant, they're abusive, and yet people want to be like them. They want to dress the same way. They want to be just like them. Verse 7, their eyes swell out through fatness. Again, doesn't sound very good to us. Their hearts overflow with follies. But what that means is they have this insatiable longing for more and more and more and more. I mean, they're, they're fat, but yet their eyes are still swelling out of it because they want more. Their hearts are full of, of folly. They're just, they're foolish. They, they believe in their heart that there is no God. They act out. They do whatever they want. If there's something that they can dream of doing, they do it. And it only just kind of produces more and more and more and more. And life seems so great. I mean, Hugh Hefner is getting all old and pruney, and yet every time you see the guy, he's got more bunnies around him and more money. How does that work? It's that same kind of thing. Their evil desire runs riot. There's no end to their earthly satisfaction. If they can dream it, they do it. And from here, it looks so great. I they're breaking all of God's laws. They're breaking all of God's commandments. They're living and doing whatever they want, and their life looks fantastic. But not only that, in verse 8, they scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They even set their mouths against heavens and their tongues struts to the earth. They threaten other people. They even threaten God's people. They even blaspheme God himself, and yet he does nothing. God, that is not right. That is not fair. Verse 10, therefore his people, God's people, even turn back to them and find no fault in them. These are popular people and even the people of God are falling into it. They're being led astray and they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the most high? And what we see there is God's people, those who once professed to believe God, now question his wisdom and his knowledge because after all, when they're looking at it, I mean, these people clearly have something going for them. It's working out great. I mean, they're blaspheming against God and nothing's happening. So God, are you there? You must not be. So what am I doing? I'm gonna do what they're doing. And so it goes. It goes. I mean, look at how great their lives are. I mean, verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease and increasing riches. And Who doesn't want what they have? Life of ease and riches. They're wealthy, they're beautiful, they're popular, they're successful. They can do whatever they want, indulge in whatever they want, and still they prosper. And when we look at that, we say, you know what? Their lives are better than mine. What's up with that? Their lives are better than mine. And I would be a liar if I said that I didn't want that. Now, let me just clarify something really quickly before we move on. It's not implicitly wrong to want to be successful or to work hard to be successful. It's not implicitly wrong to enjoy the simple pleasures of life that the Lord has given you. It's not implicitly wrong to attain wealth or to have wealth. right? It's not implicitly wrong to want to be healthy. It's not implicitly wrong to seek to avoid or to correct physical pain or hardship. It's not implicitly wrong to want to be liked by others and to even seek to make yourself more presentable in their eyes. The problem comes when we make life about those things. When those become more important to us than God, when we spend our lives beholding those rather than Him, it puts everything off kilter. It's not that God says that you have to just sh- like give a promise of, of just poverty and, and join a cloister, right? He's not talking asceticism here. But yet, where does that fit in relation to God? And friends, let's not be deceived by this because this is subtle. This happens all around us. We're told to be envious of others. We're we're hardwired to be envious of others. The problem is seen when we compare our lives to others and we begin to resent the fact that they have more. Or maybe you've got it all. You're on the other end, right? Right? You've got abundance, you've got prosperity, and, and yet you're showing your, your heart through your arrogance and through your, the fact that you push other people down. Either way, whether your lack and it's, it's evidenced in envy or you have it and it's evidenced in arrogance, what that shows is that you are worshiping something else, that you're making your life about something else. It, wor- it shows that we are worshiping things other than God and that God is not enough. And that my heart's true happiness is found when I have God and fill in the blank. When I have God and the successful career. When I have God and the accolades and the praise of men. When I have God and a beautiful family filled with obedient children. When I have God and the perfect wife. When I have God and the perfect house, etc., etc., etc. But friends, beware. Beware. Though envy is the norm of our culture, it's not innocent and it's not neutral. Let's not allow ourselves a little just room to indulge in envy. Well, I'm just going to play around with this a little bit, you know. I'm just going to entertain those thoughts a little bit more and more. Let's make no excuses for those thoughts or those feelings. Let's not justify it away because if you keep your eyes on the world, if you set your heart on all the stuff that other people have and you don't, it will lead you to ruin. You will not stand still. You will not remain neutral. I mean, look at the effects that envy had on Asaph in verses 13 through 16. Asaph came to the point where he said, all in vain, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. God, I've labored faithfully for you. I have obeyed you. I have tried to live a holy life. And these wicked people, they break every one of your laws, every one of your commandments, and look how great their lives are. I mean, look at what you have given them. But what about me? I mean, when are you going to bless me? I've waited for so long. I've kept myself pure. But all my friends are engaged or married. Most of them haven't been faithful to you at all. When are you going to give me a spouse? You know, I work so hard from sun up to sundown, but I can never. Seem to get ahead. There's never just even an extra dollar in the budget at the end of the month. And I feel like I'm drowning in it. Despite how hard I work, I can't get ahead. And I look over there and there are people that don't even lift a finger and they have more money than that they know what to do with. And God, what about me? When are you going to bless my hard work? I'm willing to work. When are you going to bless it? Maybe some of you moms out there are thinking about how you've given up so much to stay at home and and care for your children, and you have. You have. You've indentured yourself to your home and to your family, and the least the Lord could give you, the least that he could bless you with, is good behavior from your kids and a husband that actually encourages you and acknowledges all your hard work. Is that too much to ask? Maybe your heart cries out, 3,500 babies are murdered every day in the United States. In the name of choice, in the name of convenience, in the name of sex, I would cut off my right arm to have just one of them. Or you pray, Lord, we have sacrificed so much to serve you. You know, we gave up jobs, we gave up homes, We left our family, we left our friends, we left faithful churches behind. We've come willingly to follow you into this dark and difficult place. It's been years. When are we gonna see the fruit? Or you pray just in desperation, not even knowing what it is you want, but you know There's just emptiness there. And it leaves you wondering, is it worth it? I mean, is the Christian life worth it? I mean, here we're confronted with the reality that the Christian life is not easier than a life lived apart from God. And what do we do with that? We begin to look then at obedience and faithfulness to God as as a chore, as a painful toil. And rather than seeing life apart from God as futile, we begin to twist it. We begin to distort it. And we start to think that life in Christ is the one that's lived in vain. And Asaph goes on in verse 14 He says all day all the day long I've been stricken, rebuked every morning. Every day I am afflicted for my faith in God by others, but not just from others, God. I am by you. I am reprimanded and rebuked by you. Every single morning, I am reminded that it is not enough. That I am not good enough. And rather, and it rebukes and reprimands. They keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they keep coming, and they're true. Verse 15, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. You know, he's saying, I'm supposed to be leading your children to worship you. But no matter what I say, and no matter what I do, I'm going to betray them. If I pretend like nothing is wrong in my heart, that this is not how I truly feel, that this is not what I'm thinking, I will betray them. I'll be a hypocrite. But if I'm honest with my struggle, it might lead them to believe that it's hopeless. And either way, I'm going to betray them. And here's this one who's appointed by God to lead his people in worship and he's thinking to himself, you know what? Maybe it's better that I just step down. Maybe it's better that I just remain silent. He knows that he can't just continue to go through the motion. And just being on this side of things, let me just say this. I would venture to say that this thought has crossed the mind of every single person in ministry at some point in their life. I am absolutely confident that that's the case. And it's one of the reasons why many do step down. So exhausted and confused, Asaph groans in verse 16 when I thought of how to understand this, it seemed to me to be a wearisome task. I mean, do you see how low Asaph has sunk into the pit of despondency? It seemed like a hopeless and wearisome task, that it is utterly draining, that it is futile to understand why God would bless the wicked and allow his children to suffer. And he is ready to walk away. He's ready to leave. Remember what he said in verse 2, that he almost stumbled, that he nearly slipped. His envy had led him to the verge of walking away from God entirely. He was that low. And Guys, Asaph is not the only one. A little while ago, we sang, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It was written by Robert Robinson. One of the lines that we often quote Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you know Robert Robinson did? He became a Unitarian. William Cooper, we sang, There is a fountain filled with blood. We're going to sing, God moves in a mysterious way, battled with depression all of his life and tried to take his life multiple times. The Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon battled with depression. Adoniram Judson, after suffering in prison in Burma, losing his wife and his children, was so deep, just broken, deeply broken, deeply in grief, he actually dug a grave and sat next to it and waited to die. And we think to ourselves, why would God allow that to happen? Verse 21, Asaph says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart. Now, who is he embittered towards? Asaph is angry with God. He's standing in judgment of God. Lord, you are not fair. This is not right. You are supposed to be good to your people, but here the wicked are prospering, and I have it so hard. And he's angry at God for the life that he has been given. It was God who stabbed him in his heart. That word prick, it doesn't really do it justice. It's stab, it's stabbing him in his heart. And every time he sees something good to someone who God calls evil, it's like God taking that knife and stabbing it into his back all over again. And he's so consumed by his envy. He's so embittered by his judgment of God. His heart is so set. His eyes so fixed on the world that he forgot who God was. And in verse 22, he said, I was brutish and ignorant. Quite literally, I was stupid. I was like a beast Toward you. And so here's this chosen leader, this Holy Spirit inspired songwriter who's heard all of the sermons, who's sung all of the songs, who has been saturated in God's word, and he is as dumb as an ox before God. And so, friends, let's not be deceived here, thinking envy is somehow innocent. This is the effect that envy has upon our hearts. And there is no amount of self-will. There's no amount of going through the religious emotions. There's no amount of pretending or excusing or sucking it up that can free us from this emptiness of envy. When we take our hearts off of God and we set them on the world, this is the natural course of our lives. And like Asaph, we find ourselves not fulfilled but totally emptied by it. So, what hope is there for us? Well, fortunately, the emptiness of envy is second, overwhelmed by the nearness of God. Verse 17 is the turning point, it's the key verse in this psalm. Probably the most important word in this whole song is that very first word, until. See, Asaph's envy was consuming him, it was engulfing him until. And just as that previous section showed us the place of envy was our hearts that were set on the world and the reason for our envy was the perceived prosperity of the wicked. The effect of envy is, was cold, silence, bitterness, and brutishness towards God. In verses 17 through 28, it provides us with an alternative place, an alternative reason, and an alternative effect. And In verses 17 through 22, we see the place of nearness until I went into the sanctuary of God. Asaph was being consumed by his envy, and the solution was not found within himself, but outside of himself. It was found in the sanctuary of God. Now, the sanctuary of God is God's dwelling place. This is where God comes face to face with his people. It's a place where God reveals who he is and what he is doing. The sanctuary of God is the place that is set apart for the worship of God, where the people of God gather together to meet with him, to commune with him, to pray to him and to offer praise to him for who he is. And because God is holy and without sin, God's dwelling place must also be holy. And if God is dwelling in his dwelling place, which is holy, then those who come face to face with God must also be holy and without sin. Otherwise, the presence of this holy God will consume them. It will destroy them. And so the sanctuary of God must also be a place of sacrifice where the sins of God's people are covered by the blood sacrifice of another. So when you think of, about sanctuary, when you hear that word sanctuary, think about God dwelling with His people. Think nearness. Think relationship. Think communing with God in prayer. When you think about the sanctuary of God, think about the place of public worship to God. Not individual or private, but public. You see... Here's the deal. We're, we're, we're so blinded by our individualism, by our privatization of our culture that we can think often that you can be a Christian. You can live however you want. As long as you claim to be a Christian, then you can set the parameters on what you want that Christianity to look like. And as long as you're living within that circle that you've created for yourself, then you're okay. But that's not what Asaph means when he says the sanctuary of God. Because if Asaph had only sought God through private religion, where his He was the one that set the boundaries and the times and the allotments and the parameters and the limits where he was the the authority, where he was the one that set the interpretation and he did not allow the worship of God's people and their prayers and the preaching of the word to encourage his heart, then he would have continued to be consumed by his envy because envy was part of his private worship too. You get that, Right? By itself, the heart of man is deceitful and wicked beyond what we can imagine. That's that's Jeremiah 17. And the only hope we have of being stirred out of that is not by just doing it ourselves. It was killing Asaph to do that. The difference was public worship, where he was brought to see the nearness of God, where we heard the truth and he couldn't just dismiss it away or redefine it based upon his own liking, where he was held accountable, where he was discipled, where people loved him and cared for him and prayed for him. This is public worship that's taking place. If you try to battle this on your own, keep it hidden. I'm going to deal with envy all by myself and my own private worship. You're going to fail. You will do that with any sin because that's part of your private worship too. You need the public worship of God. And friends, this is why we gather together. This is why we're here this morning. This is why we unite our hearts and minds where we sing in one voice. And when we sing in one voice, what we're doing is we're proclaiming truth. But we're proclaiming it not just to God, but we're proclaiming it to each other. We're encouraging one another. We're building one another up in the truth, not in what we feel, Right, We're gathered together praying for each other. Guys, do you pray for one another when you come together? Let me encourage you, just practically start praying for each other while you sing in corporate worship. Do that for me. We build one another up. We love one another. We come around one another. We invest in one another. And when we do that, we worship God together, and that's where freedom found. And this sanctuary of God is also a place of sacrifice where we remember all that God has done for us so that we might now have access to Him through Jesus Christ, through His blood, and so that we might offer our hearts yet again in devotion to Him. We're missing something if we just try to do that on our own. We're missing God's gift to us. God dwelling with his people through revelation, through worship, and through sacrifice. The sanctuary of God was God's idea, this was not the thoughts of men. Just saying, how can we gain control over the masses? And so we're going to try to bring them together. And there's a pastor who's going to stand up there. He's going to try to manipulate you into believing what he believes or doing what he wants you to do. That's not it. This was God's idea. Sure, there's been abuses. But the one true God, the holy God of the universe, who created all things brought up the idea of the sanctuary so that he can dwell with his people, his people who are sinners. This is the way that God has made so that ignorant and hard-hearted and rebellious sinners just like you and me can live in eternal, not live in eternal separation from the one thing that can satisfy our health, our, our, our lives and our souls and to really bring joy and happiness that goes on forevermore so that we would not be eternally separated from God. Don't make much of the fact that Asaph entered into the sanctuary because look at his heart. He was in weakness, in envy, and in his anger towards God, Asaph drew near to God through the way that God had appointed to him. He entered into the sanctuary of God, and when he did that, his heart was changed. His heart was changed because God revealed himself through the proclamation of his word, through the public worship of his people to remind Asaph of who God really is. That God truly is good to his people. He truly is good to those who are pure in heart. Asaph then began to see his own heart that he was not pure. And, And though he was professing to know God, in reality he was slipping and stumbling that he was full of envy toward the world and anger towards God, that he was like a beast toward the Lord. And Asaph began to fully acknowledge his wrong thinking, his wrong feeling. Asaph began to fully acknowledge his sin and to confess it to God. He repented of his sin and he believed again in the goodness of God. And Asaph began to consider the end of all that he was loving, of all that he was envying, of all that he was worshiping falsely. And it says in verse 17, then I discerned their end. That truly you have set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. He's saying this to God. God, I know that you have placed them in this position and it is a slippery place. It will fall into ruin. Yeah, their life might be great, but this is not, All of their life, soon, they will be destroyed in a moment. They will be swept away by utter terrors like a dream when one awakes. Oh, Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. The moment that the Lord decides to take action, they are utterly destroyed. That is their end, like the end of a shadow when it comes face to face with the sun. Now understand something here. Asaph is not going all church lady. He's not saying, well, you just live it up, you wicked sinners, because let me tell you something, you are going to burn in hell. That's not his point. It's not Westboro Baptist Church. Though that statement is true, it's not the point he's trying to make. See, when he considers their end, he remembers that's the exact same end that he deserves. And that when he set his eyes off of God and he started living for the world, he was trying to live a life that was pursuing that end yet again. And he's thinking to himself, what am I doing? This was a wake-up call for him. That all of those things that I was envious of, all of those things that I was longing for will come to nothing in the moment. The very moment that the Lord rouses himself. All that money, all that ease, all that popularity and power, all that stuff. It's not going to mean anything the second that they die. And it won't afford them anything. Anything. They will be left with nothing but eternal separation from God and the emptiness of their envy and their self-pity forever. And I was longing for that. I was wanting that. I was willing to trade the eternal nearness with the only one who can truly satisfy my heart for that. I am a fool. God, I am a beast toward you. Friends, that is what we all deserve. That's what our envy deserves. That's what our anger and our discontentment and our ignorance and our rebellion against God deserves. You do understand that, right? All that stuff that you've been striving for in this life, it's not going to matter a bit the second that you die. But you will stand before God and give an account for what you did with your life with the blessings that He has given you. You will have to give an account for what you did with this truth that He has made known to you this morning and the disposition of your heart toward Him. And if we're honest with ourselves that We have to admit that we have all chosen a love for the world over a love for God. We have all rebelled against Him. We have all tried to live our lives without Him. We have all tried to go through the motions or live as if this is my world and I am God. We've all exchanged the truth of God for lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We have all lived as beasts before God. But God has made a way for sinners like you and me to dwell with him forever. You see, God did rouse himself and he sent his one and only son. Jesus Christ to live a life that you and I could never live a life of perfect obedience to God a life that found its joy and its happiness and its contentment in him and though he had that even in here on earth he willingly gave up that life by dying as a sacrifice for all your sin all of your envy all of your anger, all of your frustration, all of your worldly loves, all of your false worship. And He rose again so that our eyes might be open yet again to who God is to remember what he is like. He has rose again so that we might know that the sacrifice for our sin has been paid and we can actually have a new life with him, we can be changed. Our hearts can be changed. We can live differently. That Psalm, 20, uh, Psalm 73, verses 25 and 26, it actually can describe our hearts because we can and we will dwell eternally with God in living fellowship with him forever. We're delivered from the end of the wicked. We are pricked in heart and we receive Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace, both now and forevermore. So come, enter into the sanctuary through faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you draw near to Him, God makes a promise that He will draw near to you. Don't hide your sin. Confess it. Don't try to go through the motions and and live in half-hearted worship of God, half-hearted love of the world, but fully acknowledge wrong thoughts and feelings that you have towards God and towards the world. See Him for who He is and for who you are as an undeserving sinner. Consider the end that you deserve. And remember what all that earthly gain is going to get them. When you do that, you'll know that God's grace is at work because you will have the strength to turn away from your sin and to place your trust yet again in the goodness of our loving heavenly Father who is near. You see, it's only when we understand verses 1 through 22 that we can even begin to fathom the beauty of verses 23 through 26. And here we see the reason for nearness. Now, I don't want us to miss it, so I want to begin by reading in verse 21 just to be reminded yet again of Asaph's heart before God, okay? In verse 21, he says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. There's Asaph, there's Asaph's holiness, there's Asaph's worthiness right there for you. Nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me, even me, to glory. And so, whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And my flesh and my heart may fail. But God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Friends, you don't experience nearness to God because you picked yourself up, because you brought yourself into the sanctuary of God. Because despite the fact that you were still angry at God, despite the fact that you were still brutish and ignorant, you were continually with him. Why? Because God has taken hold of your right hand. Because God has guided you with his counsel. Because God has guaranteed that he will receive you into his glory. You didn't do that. You don't do that. He did that. The reason why any of us can draw near to God is because God has drawn near to us. Like a child, he has taken us by the hand. He has counseled us. He has led us. He has brought us up. He will lead us to glory. And our flesh and our hearts, not only may they fail, I guarantee you they will. And nevertheless, God is the strength of our hearts. He is our portion Forever. Now, this is one of those things where you need to understand language, right? Portion. We think a portion, we think small, right? Portion, like a portion or a piece of pie. Okay, you gave me a piece of pie. That's great. That's going to satisfy me for a little bit, but there's this whole pie, and I really want that whole pie. I mean, yeah, this is great for now, but I'm going to come back for seconds. I'm going to want more. And so if I'm left with just this portion, then I think to myself, there's all this other stuff that I don't have, and I want that too, That's the wrong way to understand this word portion. When we hear this word portion, we need to think about Ephesians chapter 1. We actually read a verse of it earlier today. But in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says this, that, that we are to praise God because he has given us, already given us, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, and he goes on to say, you are chosen. You are elected in God. You are elected so that I will make you holy and blameless before me. He goes on to say, I have adopted you as sons and daughters. You are my children. He says, I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you by the blood of Christ. All your trespasses have been covered and you have now been eternally reconciled to me. We are one. And while we are waiting for that ultimate end where we can at last, you see Jesus face to face. In the meantime, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you the guaranteed Holy Spirit. And he's, he's going to seal you. He's the guarantee. That all of my promises are true, and that what happens at the end, and will now and until the end is that you have this eternal inheritance in Christ that will never fade, will never grow out, it will, will never kind of get old, and is far more abundant than you could ever imagine. And I've already given it to you. That's your portion. Your portion is God. God, who is infinite and eternal. If you know, I, I don't know that much about math, but what I do know about math is that you can't, if you divide infinity by any positive number that is greater than zero, guess what you get? Infinity. Right? It's like infinity, 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 infinity. Add those all together, what do you get? Infinity. In heaven, we're not going to be comparing portion sizes right? It's not like we're going to say, oh, you know, Brian got a little bit more than me. Oh, It's not the way it's going to be. I'm going to be like, Brian, I got God. And Brian's like, that's great, Chet. I got God too. That's what we get. It's amazing. And nor should we think about heaven in terms of earthly reward like mansions or riches or feasts or virgins. Jonathan Edwards taught on this passage that the true saint cannot contrive of a heaven more agreeable to his inclination and desires than such as is revealed in the word of God, a heaven of enjoying the glorious God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There he will have all of his sin taken away and shall be perfectly conformed to God and shall spend an eternity in exalted exercises of love to God and in the enjoyment of his love. If God were not to be enjoyed in heaven, but only vast wealth, immense treasures of silver and gold, great honor of such the kind men obtain in this world, and the fullness of all of the greatest sensual delights and pleasures, all of these things would not make up for the want of God and Christ and the enjoyment of them there. If heaven were empty of God, it would indeed be an empty, melancholy place. The godly have, made, or have been made sensible as to all creature enjoyments, that they cannot satisfy the soul, and therefore nothing will content them but God. Offer a saint what you will, but if you deny him God, he will esteem himself miserable. God is the center of his desires. And as long as you keep his soul from its proper center, it will not be at rest. And this is what happens when we try to find our rest in all that other stuff. That we're not at rest. Because our hearts were never meant to be satisfied in that. We were never meant to find rest in it. Our rest is in God. And friends, this is why Asaph sings, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing, nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And I know that my flesh and my heart may fail, but God, I know this too, that you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, that sounds like insanity to the world, but nothing could be more precious for the one to whom God has drawn near. When our hearts are far from God, we set our eyes and our longings on the things of this world, and when that happens, our worship of God ceases. or We become half-hearted, duplicitous, double-minded people we sit in silent doubt, we sit in envy, we're angry towards God, but when God draws near to us, our hearts are changed. And the emptiness of envy is then overwhelmed by the nearness of God. And in verse 27 and 28, we see its effect. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You shall put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, so that I may tell of all of your works. The Christian life is no longer seen as a burden. We now desire to faithfully obey. Who cares if I don't have all of that stuff? You know I trust that God is up to good even in the midst of my difficulty. Even in the midst of my pain, even in the midst of my my loss and my suffering, because I know that for me, it's good to be near God. It's better to be near God. I don't find comfort, I don't find strength in all of those earthly means of prosperity like I did before, because I have made the Lord God my refuge. That's where I run to for security. And though I had almost given up, and though I sat in silence and in doubt and in anger and self-pity, now I want to tell others of all of your works. You see, the key to turning away from sin, the key to overcoming a love and double-minded worship of the world is not to do better or to be better, It's not to take a vow of poverty or to cut yourself off from the world. The solution is not to try harder or to do more religious things or even to will yourself to share your faith more. That's only going to lead you to bitter frustration and to utter exhaustion. The solution is a greater love. The key to enter into the sanctuary of God that He has provided for you by the blood of Christ. It's to meditate upon the way, upon the nearness, upon the presence that He has given, to stand in awe of His love and to behold the immeasurable treasure that He has given to you in Christ Jesus. And when our hearts are captured by the nearness of God, this song, Psalm 73, it will be on our lips. It will cause us to rejoice. We will delight to be near to God who is our refuge. And we will long to tell others of his works. That's the effect of the nearness of God. No amount of self-help or self-actualization or personal betterment will ever get you there. But the emptiness of envy is overwhelmed by the nearness of God.